Section 2 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 1, The Jewish Diaspora in Eastern Europe, Part 2. 2. The Kingdom of the Khazars While Byzantium was pressing on the Euxian colonies from the west, endeavoring to draw them, together with the adjoining lands of the Slavs, into the sphere of Christian civilization, a new power from the east, from the Caucasus and the Caspian region, came rushing along in the same direction. We refer to the Khazars, or Khazars, forming originally a conglomerate of Finno-Turkish tribes. The warlike Khazars appeared in the Caucasus during the migration of nations and began to make inroads into the Persian Empire of the Sassanid, often acting as the tools of Persia's rival, Byzantium. The great Arabic conquest of the 7th century and the rise of powerful eastern caliphate checked the movement of the Khazars toward the east, and turned it westward to the shores of the Caspian Sea, the mouth of the Volga and the Don, the Byzantine colonies on the Black and Azov seas, and in particular the flourishing region of Tauris. At the mouth of the Volga, where the mighty river joins the Caspian Sea, near the present city of Astrakhan, arose the kingdom of the Khazars with its capital Itil, the name originally designating the river Volga. From there the bellicose Khazars made constant raids upon the Slavonian tribes far and near to the very gate of Kiev, forcing them to become their tributaries. Another Khazar center was established in the Crimea among Byzantine Greeks and Jews. From the Crimea, the Khazars pressed forward in the direction of Byzantium and the Balkan Peninsula, constituting a serious menace to the Roman Empire of the East. As a rule, the Byzantine emperors concluded the alliance with the kings, or kagans of the Khazars, checking their unbridled energy by means of concessions and the payment of tribute. In Constantinople, the illusion was fostered that the church, and with it, Byzantine diplomacy were in the end bound to triumph over all the Khazars by converting them to Christianity. With this purpose in view, missionaries were dispatched from Byzantium, while the local bishops of Tauris were working zealously to the same end. But the task proved extremely difficult, for the Greek church found itself face to face with a powerful rival in Judaism, which succeeded in establishing its hold on the part of the Khazar nation. While yet in their pagan state, the Khazars were exposed at one at the same time to the influence of the three religions, Mohammedanism, which pursued its triumphant march from the Arabic Caliphate, Christianity, which was spreading in Byzantium, and Judaism, which, headed by the Exilarchs and Gaons of Babylonia, was centered in the Caliphate while its ramifications spread all over the empire of Byzantium and its colonies on the Black Sea. 
The Arabs and the Byzantines succeeded in converting several groups of the Khazar population to Islam and Christianity, but the lion's share fell to Judaism, for it managed to get the hold of the royal dynasty and the ruling classes. The conversion of the Khazars to Judaism, which took place about 740, is described circumstantially in the traditions preserved among the Jews and in the accounts of the medieval Arabic travelers. The king, or Kagan, of the Khazars, by the name of Bulan, had resolved to abandon paganism, but was undecided as to religion he should adopt instead. Messengers sent by the caliphs persuade him to accept Islam. Envoys from Byzantium endeavored to win him over to Christianity, and representatives of Judaism championed their own faith. As a result, Bulan arranged a disputation between the advocates of the three religions to be held in his presence, but he failed to carry away any definite conviction from their arguments and mutual refutations. Thereupon, the king invited the first, the Christian, and then the Mohammedan, and questioned them separately. On asking the former which religion he thought was the better of the two, Judaism or Mohammedanism, he received the reply, Judaism, since it is the older of the two, and the basis of all religions. On asking the Mohammedan which religion he preferred, Judaism or Christianity, he received the same reply in favor of Judaism, with the same motivation. If that be the case, Bulan argued in consequence, if both the Mohammedan and Christian acknowledge the superiority of Judaism to the religion of their antagonist, I too prefer to adopt the Jewish religion. Bulan accordingly embraced Judaism, and many of the Khazar nobles followed his example. According to the Jewish sources, one of the Bulan's descendants, the Kagan Obadiah, was a particularly jealous adherent of Judaism. He invited, possibly from Babylonia, many Jewish sages to his country to instruct the converted Khazars in Bible and Talmud, and he found synagogues and established divine services. In the ninth and 10th centuries, the kingdom of the Khazars, governed by the rulers professing the Jewish faith, attained to outward power and inner prosperity. The accounts of the Arabic writers of that period throw an interesting light on the inner life of the Khazars, which was marked by religious tolerance. The king of the Khazars and governing classes professed the Jewish religion. Among the lower classes, the three monotheistic religions were all represented, and in addition, a considerable number of pagans still survived. In spite of the fact that royalty and nobility professed Judaism, the principle of religious equality was never violated. The Kagan had under him seven, according to another version, nine judges, two for the followers of the Jewish religion, two each for the Christians and Mohammedans, and one for the pagans, the Slavs, the Russians and other races. 
Only occasionally did the Khazar king show signs of intolerance, particularly when rumors concerning Jewish persecutions in other countries came to his ears. Thus, on one occasion, about 921, on being informed that the Mohammedans had destroyed the synagogue somewhere in the land of Babunzi, the Kagan gave orders to destroy the tower, minaret of a certain mosque, and to kill the muezzins, the heralds who called to prayer, explaining his attitude in these words. I should have destroyed the mosque itself had I not feared that not a single synagogue would be left standing in the lands of the Mohammedans. In the kingdom of the Khazars, favorably situated as it was between the Caliphate of Baghdad and the Byzantine Empire, the Jews evidently played an important economic role. During the ninth and 10th centuries, the territory of the Khazars was traversed by one of the great trade routes which connected the three parts of the old world. According to the testimony of Ibn Hordadbe, an Arabic geographer of the ninth century, Jewish merchants who were able to speak the principal Asiatic and European languages traveled from west to east and from east to west on sea and by land. The land route led from Persia and the Caucasus through the country of the Slavs, near the capital of the Khazars, the mouth of the Volga, by crossing the Sea of Georgian, the Caspian Sea. Another Arabic writer named Ibn Faki, who wrote shortly after 900, testifies that on the route of the Slav merchant, who were trading between the Sea of the Khazars, the Caspian Sea, and that of Rum, the Byzantine or Black Sea, was found the Jewish city of Samkos on the Taman Peninsula near the Crimea. During this period of prosperity, the kingdom of the Khazars received a considerable Jewish influx from Byzantium, where the Jews were persecuted by Emperor Basil the Macedonian, 867 to 886, being forcibly converted to Christianity, while hundreds of Jewish communities were devastated. The Jewish emigrant from Byzantium was naturally attracted toward the land in which Judaism was the religion of the government and the court, though equal toleration was accorded to all other religions. The well-known Arabic writer Masudi refers to this Jewish immigration in the following passage. The population of the Khazar capital consists of Muslims, Christians, Jews, and pagans. The king his court and all members of the Khazar tribe professed Jewish religion, which has been the dominant faith of the country since the time of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid. Many Jews who settled among the Khazar came from all the cities of Muslims and the lands of Rum, Byzantium, the reason being that the king of Rum persecuted the Jews of his empire in order to force them to adopt Christianity. In this way, a large number of Jews left the land of Rome in order to depart to the Khazars. This testimony dates from the year 954. Contemporaneous with it is the extremely interesting correspondence between Joseph, the Kagan of the Khazars, and Hazdai ibn Sabrut, the Jewish statesman of the Cordoba Caliphate in Spain. 
Being a high official at the court of Abderrahman III, Hasdai maintained diplomatic relations with the emperors of Byzantium and other rulers of Asia and Europe, and in this way came to learn of the Khazar kingdom through the Persian and Byzantine ambassadors. The news of the existence of land somewhere beyond the sea, where a Jew sat on the throne and Judaism was the religion of the state, filled Hasda with joy. Firmly convinced that he had found the clues to the lost Jewish kingdom of which popular Jewish tradition had so much to tell, the Jewish statesmen at the Muslim court felt the burning need of getting in touch with the rulers of Khazaria, and in case the rumors should prove correct, of transferring his abode thither and devoting his powers of statesmanship to his fellow Jews. Prolonged inquiries elicited the information that the land of the Khazars lay fifteen days by sea from Constantinople, that it stood in commercial relations with Byzantium, that the name of its present ruler was Joseph, and that the safest means of communicating with him was by way of Hungary, Bulgaria, and Russia. After several vain attempts to get in touch with the ruler of the Khazars, Hasdai finally succeeded in having an elaborate Hebrew epistle delivered into the hands of King Joseph about 955. In his epistle, Hasdai first gives an account of himself and his position at the court of Cordoba, then proceeds to beg the king of the Khazars to inform him in detail of the rise and present status of the Jewish kingdom, being anxious to find out whether there is anywhere a soil and a kingdom where scattered Israel is not subject and subordinate to others. Were I to know, Hasdai continues, that this is true, I should renounce my place of honor, abandon my lofty rank, forsake my family, and wander over mountains and hills, by sea and on land, until I reach the dwelling place of my lord and sovereign, there to behold his greatness and splendor, the seats of his subject, the position of his servants, and the tranquility of the remnant of Israel. Having been cast down from our former glory, and now living in exile, we are powerless to answer those who constantly say unto us, Every nation hath its own kingdom, while you have no trace of a kingdom on earth. But when we receive the news about our Lord and Sovereign, about the power of his kingdom and the multitude of his host, we were filled with astonishment. We lift our heads, our spirit revived, our hands were strengthened, the kingdom of my Lord serving us as an answer. Would that this rumor might increase in strength, i.e. be verified, for thereby will our greatness be enhanced. After long and painful waiting, Hasdai received the king's reply. In it, the ruler of the Khazars gives an account of the heterogeneous composition of his people and the various religions professed by it. He describes how King Bulan and his princes embraced the Jewish faith after testing the various rival creeds and how zealously it was upheld by the kings Obadiah, Ezekiah, Manasseh, 
Hanukkah, Isaac, Jubilum, Moses, or Manasseh II, Nisi, Aaron, Menachim, Benjamin, Aaron II, the last being the father of the writer, King Joseph. The king continues, I reside, I, my residence is situated at the mouth of the river Itil, Volga. At the end of the river is found the Sea of Georgian, the Caspian Sea. The beginning of the river is towards the east, at a distance of four months' journey. Along the banks of the river, there are many nations living in towns and villages, in open as well as fortified places. These are their names, Burtas, Bolga, Suvar, Arisu, Jamis, Benentit, Sever, Slavion. Each of these nations is very numerous, and all of them are tributary to me. From there the boundary turns toward the Buarism, probably Quarism, up to Georgian, and all the inhabitants of the seashore, for a distance of one month's journey, are tributary to me. To the south are found the Semender, Bagtadlut, up to the gates of Bab al-Abwab, which are situated on the coast. To the west there are Sarkel, Samkrutz, Kerch, Sugdai, Aluz, Lambat, Batnit, Alubika, Kut, Mankup, Budak, Alma, and Gurzun. All these localities are situated on the shores of the Sea of Constantinia toward the west. They are all tributary to me. Their dwelling and camping places are scattered over a distance of four months' journey. No one take notice that I live at the mouth of the river Volga, and with the help of the Almighty, I guard the entrance to the river and prevent the Russians, who arrived in vessels, from passing into the Caspian Sea for the purpose of making their way to the Ismailites, Mohammedans. In the same manner, I keep the enemies on land from approaching the gates of Bab al-Abwab. Because of this, I am at war with them, and were I to let them pass but once, they would destroy the whole land of the Ishmaelites as far as Baghdad. Our eyes are turned to God and to the wise men of Israel, who presides over the academies of Jerusalem and Babylon. We are far away from Zion but it has come to our ears that, on account of our sins, the calculations concerning the coming of the Messiah have become confused, so that we know nothing. May it please the Lord to act for the sake of his great name. May the destruction of his temple, and the cutting off of holy service, and the misfortune that have befallen us not appear small in his sight. May the words of the prophet be fulfilled, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 We have nothing in our possession concerning the coming of the Messiah except the prophecy of Daniel. May the God of Israel hasten our redemption and gather together all our exiled and scattered brethren in my lifetime and thy lifetime and in the lifetime of whole house of Israel who love his name. 
The concluding phrase cast a shadow of doubt of the authenticity of this epistle, or more correctly, some parts of both epistles, which more probably reflect the mournful messianic temper of the 16th century when this correspondence was brought to light by Spanish exiles who had made their way to Constantinople, then the state of mind of Spanish dignitary or a Khazar king of the 10th century. However, the essential data contained in Joseph's epistle are so completely in accord with the record of contemporaneous Arabic writer that a substance of this correspondence may be safely declared to be authentic. Joseph's epistle must have arrived in Spain about 960. Only a few years later, events occurred which made this king the last ruler of the Khazars. The apprehensions voiced in his letter concerning the Russians with whom the king was at war and who were ready to destroy the whole land of the Ishmaelites as far as Baghdad were speedily realized. A few years later, the Slavonian tribes, who had been in the meantime united under the leadership of Russian princes, not only threw off the yoke of the Khazars, whose vassal they were, but also succeeded in invading and finally destroying their center at the mouth of the Volga. Prince Sviatoslav of Kiev devastated the Khazar territories on the Itil and, penetrating to the heart of the country, dislodged the Khazars from the Caspian region, 966-969. to The Khazars withdrew to their possessions on the Black Sea, and established themselves in particular on the Crimean Peninsula, which for a long time retained the name of Khazaria. The greatly reduced Khazar kingdom in Tauris, the survival of a mighty empire, was able to hold its own for nearly half a century, until in the 11th century it fell a prey to the Russians and Byzantines, 1016. The relatives of the last Kagan fled, according to tradition, to their co-religionists in Spain. The Khazar nation was scattered and was subsequently lost among the other nations. The remnants of the Khazars in the Crimea, who professed Judaism, were in all likelihood merged with the native Jews, consisting partly of Rabbanites and partly of Karaites. In this way, the ancient Jewish settlements on the Crimean Peninsula suddenly received a large increase. At the same time, the influx of Jewish immigrants, who together with the Greeks moved from Byzantium toward the northern shores of the Black Sea, continued as theretofore, the greater part of these immigrants consisting of Karaites, who were found in large numbers in the Byzantine Empire. Even the subsequent dominions of the Pechenegs and Plovjis, who ruled over the Tauris region after the downfall of the Khazars, failed to uproot the ancient tradition, and as late as the 12th century, the name Khazaria meets us in contemporary documents. About the year 1175, the traveler Petaya of Ratisbon visited the land of the Khazars and that of the Khazars, which are separated from each other by a sea tongue, meaning the continental part of the Tauris, 
where the nomadic Polopsis Kedars were roaming about, and the Crimean Peninsula, between which two regions lie the Gulf of Perekop and the Isthmus of the same name. In the land of Kedars, Bethaya did not find genuine Jews, but Minim, heretics or sectarians, who do not believe in the traditions of the sages, eat their Sabbath meal in the dark, and are ignorant of the Talmudic forms of the benedictions and prayers, and have not even heard of the Talmud. It is evident that the order is describing the Karaites. 3. The Jews in the early Russian principalities and in the Tatric Khanate of the Crimea. With the growth of the Russian principality of Kiev, which received its ecclesiastic organization from the hands of Byzantine monks, it gradually became another objective of Jewish immigration. The Jews came thither not only from Khazaria or the Crimea, but also, following in the wakes of the Greeks, from the empire of the Byzantium, developing the commercial life of the principality and connecting that primitive region with the centers of human civilization. The popular legend, which is reproduced in the ancient Russian chronicles and is no doubt tinged with the spirit of Byzantine clericalism, makes the Jews participate in the competition of religions for the conquest of pagan Russia in that famous spectacle of the test of the creeds, which took place in 986 in the presence of Vladimir, prince of Kiev. The church legend narrates that when Vladimir had announced his intention to abandon idolatry, he received a visit from Khazarian Jews, who said to him, We have heard that the Christians have come to preach their faith, but they believe in one who was crucified by us, while we believe in the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Vladimir asked the Jews, What does your law prescribe? To this they replied, To be circumcised, not to eat pork or game, or to keep the Sabbath. Where is your country? inquired the prince. In Jerusalem, replied the Jews. But do you live there? he asked. We do not, answered the Jews, for the Lord was wrought with our forefathers and scattered us all over the earth for our sins, while our land was given away to the Christians. Thereupon Vladimir exclaimed, How then dare you teach others when you yourselves are rejected by God and scattered? If God loved you, you would not be dispersed in strange lands. Do you intend to inflict the same misfortune on me? This popular tradition is historically true only insofar as it reflects the ecclesiastic and political struggle of the time. It was in Torian Chersonesus, the ancient scene of Jewish and Byzantine rivalry, that the thread were woven which subsequently tied pagan Russia to Byzantium. The attempts of the Torian or Khazarian Jews to assert their claims in the religious competition and Kiev were bound to prove a failure. For community of political and economic interest was forcing Byzantium and the principality of Kiev into an alliance which was finally consummated at the end of the 10th century by the conversion of Russia to Greek Orthodox Christianity.
The alliance resulted in the downfall of their common enemy, the Khazars, who for several centuries had been struggling with the Byzantines on the shore of the Black Sea, and at the same time had held in subjection the tribes of the Slavs. In consequence of the defeats of the Khazars, a part of the Jewish Khazarian center in Tauris was transferred to the Principality of Kiev. The coincidence of the settlement of Jews in Kiev with the conversion of Russia to the Greek Orthodox faith foreshadows the course of history. The very earliest phase of Russian cultural life is stamped by the Byzantine spirit of intolerance in relation to the Jews. The abbot of the famous Petra monastery, Theodosius, 1057-1074, taught the Kiovians to live at peace with friends and foes, but with their own force, not with those of God. God's force, however, are Jews and heretics who hold a crooked religion. In the life of Theodosius, written by the celebrated Russian chronicler Nestor, we are told that this austere monk was in the habit of getting up in the night and secretly going to the Jews to argue with them about Christ. He would scold them, branding them as wicked and godless, and would purposely irritate them in the hope of being killed for the profession of Christ and thus attaining to martyrdom, though it would seem that the Jews consistently refused to grant him this pleasure. Hatred against Jews and Judaism was equally preached by Theodosius' contemporaries, Ilarion and John, metropolitans of Kiev, about 1050 and 1080. This propaganda of religious intolerance did not remain without effect. In the beginning of the 12th century, the Jewish colony of Kiev experienced the first pogrom. On the Grand Duke Sviatopolk II, 1093 to 1113, the Jews of Kiev had enjoyed complete liberty of trade and commerce. The prince had protected his Jewish subjects and had entrusted some of them with the collection of the customs and other ducal imposts. But during the interregnum following the death of Sviatopolk, 1113, they had to pay dearly for the liberty enjoyed by them. The Kiovians had offered the throne of the principality to Vladimir Monomak, but he was slow about entering the capital. As a result, riots broke out. The Kiev mob revolted and, after looting the residences of several high officials, threw itself upon the Jews and plundered their property. The well-intentioned among the inhabitants of Kiev dispatched a second delegation to Monomak, warning him that if he tarried longer, the riots would assume formidable dimensions. Thereupon Monomak arrived and restored order in the capital. Nevertheless, the Jews continued to reside in Kiev. In 1124, they suffered severely from a fire which destroyed a considerable portion of the city. In the chronicles of that period, 1146 to 1151, Mention is frequently made of the Jewish gate in Kiev. Jewish merchants were attracted toward this city, a growing commercial center serving as the connecting link between Western Europe on the one hand and the Black Sea provinces and the Asiatic continent on the other. 
Reference to Kiev is made by the Jewish travelers of the time, Benjamin of Tudela and Pateya of Ratisbon. 1160-1190 The former speaks of the kingdom of Russia stretching from the gates of Prague to the gates of Kiev, a large city on the border of the kingdom. The latter, Pateya, informs us that on leaving his home in Ratisbon, he proceeded to Prague, the capital of Bohemia. From Prague he went to Poland, and from there to Kiev, which is in Russia, whereupon he traveled for six days until he reached the Dnieper, and having crossed it, finally arrived on the coast of the Black Sea and in the Crimea. After the Crusades, when considerable settlements of Jewish immigrants from Germany began to spring up in Poland, part of these immigrants found their way into the Principality of Kiev. The German rabbis of the 12th century occasionally refer in their writings to the journeys of German Jews traveling with their merchandise to Rus and Sklavonia, Slavonia, Slav countries. The Jews of Russia, who lacked rabbinical authorities of their own, addressed their inquiries to the Jewish scholars of Germany and sent their studious young men to the West to obtain a Talmudic education. Hebrew sources of the 12th century make mention of the names of Rabbi Isaac of Chernigov and Rabbi Moses of Kiev. The latter is quoted as having addressed an inquiry to the well-known Gaon of Baghdad, Samuel ben Ali. The conquest of the Crimea by the Tatar Khans in the 13th century and the gradual extension of their sovereignty to the Principality of Kiev and Moscow brought the old center of Judaism in the Tauris region in close contact with its offshoots in various parts of Russia. Kiev enters into regular commercial intercourse with Kaffa, Theodosia, on the Crimean seashore. Kaffa becomes, during that period, an international emporium, owing to the Genoese, who had obtained from the Tatar Khans concessions for Kaffa and the surrounding country, and had founded there a commercial colony of the Genoese Republic. The Crimean Peninsula was joined to the world of commerce of Italy, and merchantmen were constantly ploughing the seas between Genoa and Kaffa, passing through the Byzantine Dardanelles. Italians, Greeks, Jews, and Armenians flocked to Kaffa and the adjacent localities on the southern coast of the Crimea. The government of the Genoese Republic time and again instructed its consuls, who were charged with the administration of the Crimean colony, to observe the principles of religious toleration in their attitude toward this heterogeneous population. If the testimonies of the traveler Schildberger, who visited the Crimea between 1394 and 1427, may be relied upon, there were in Kaffa Jews of two kinds, evidently Rabbanites and Karaites, who had two synagogues and 4,000 houses, an imposing population to judge by its numbers. The great crisis in the history of Byzantium, the capture of Constantinople by the Turks, affected also the Genoese colony in the Crimea. The Turks began to hamper the Genoese in their navigation through the Straits. In 1455, the Genoese government ceded its Kaffa possessions to the Bank of St. George in Genoa. 
The new administration set out to restore order in the colony and establish normal relations between the various races inhibiting it, but the days of this cultural oasis on the Black Sea was numbered. In 1475, Kaffa was taken by the Turks, and the whole peninsula fell under Turco-Tatric dominion. Important Jewish communities were to be found during that period, also in the older Tatric possessions of the Crimea. Two Jewish communities, one consisting of Rabbanites and the other of Karaites, flourished during the 13th century in the ancient capitals of the Tatar Khans, named Solkat, now Eskikrim. Beginning with 1428, the old Karaite community of Chuftkale, the Rock of the Jews, situated near the new Tatar capital, Bakhti Sarai, grows in numbers and influence. The memory of this community is perpetuated by a huge number of tombstones ranging from 13th to the 18th century. Crimea, now peopled with Jews, sent forth settlers to Lithuania, where, at the end of the 14th century, Grand Duke Bitovt takes them under his protection. Crimean colonies spring up in the Lithuanian towns of Troki and Lutsk, which, as will be seen later, are granted extensive privileges by the rulers of the land. The establishment of Turkish sovereignty over Crimea, 1475-1783, to resulted in a closer commercial relationship between the Jewish center on the peninsula and the Principality of Moscow, which at that time fenced herself off from the outside world by a Chinese wall, and, with few exceptions, barred from her dominions all foreigners and infidels, or Basurmans. In the second half of the 15th century, the Grand Duke of Muscovy, Ivan III, was constrained to seek the help of several Crimean Jews in his diplomatic negotiations with the Khan of the Crimea, Mengli Gray. One of the agents of the Muscovite prince was an influential Jew of Kaffa by the name of Koza Kokos, who was instrumental in bringing about a military alliance between the Grand Duke and the Khan, 1472 to 1475. It is curious to note that Kokos wrote his letters to Ivan III in Hebrew, so that the Muscovite ruler, who evidently could find no one in Moscow familiar with that language, had to request his agent to correspond with him in Russian or in the Basuman language, Tatric or perhaps Italian. Another agent of Ivan III, Zechariah Gifoli, was an Italian Jew who had previously occupied an important post in the Genoese colony in the Crimea, and was the owner of the Taman Peninsula, the Prince of Taman. He stood in close relations to Khan Mengli Girai, and in this capacity carried on a diplomatic correspondence with the Prince of Muscovy, 1484-1500. Later on, Zechariah was on the point of taking up his abode in Moscow in order to participate more directly in the foreign affairs of Russia, but Circumstances interfered with the execution of the plan. During the same period, there arose in Moscow, as the result of a sacred propaganda of Judaism, a religious movement known under the name of Judaism heresy. According to the Russian chroniclers, 
The originator of this heresy was the learned Jew Scaria, Zechariah, who had emigrated with a number of co-religionists from Kiev to the ancient Russian city of Novgorod. Profiting by the religious unrest rife at that time in Novgorod, a new sect called the Strigolniki has arisen in the city, which abrogated the church rites and went to the point of denying the divinity of Christ. Zechariah got in touch with several representatives of the Orthodox clergy and succeeded in converting them to Judaism. The leaders of Novgorod apostates, the priests Denis and Alexius, went to Moscow in 1480 and converted a number of the Greek Orthodox there, some of the new converts even submitting to the rite of circumcision. The Judaizing heresy was soon entrenched among the nobility of Moscow and in the court circles. Among its sympathizers was the daughter-in-law of the Grand Duke, Helena. The Archbishop of Novgorod, Enadius, called attention to the dangerous propagation of the Judaizing heresy and made valiant effort to uproot it in his diocese. In Moscow, the fight against the new doctrine proved extremely difficult, but here too it was finally checked owing to the vigorous endeavors of Hennadius and other orthodox zealots. By the decision of the Church Council of 1504, supported by the orders of Ivan III, the principal apostates were burned at the stake, while the others were cast into prison or exiled to monasteries. As a result, the Judaizing heresy ceased to exist. Another tragic occurrence in the same period affords a lurid illustration of Muscovite superstition. At the court of Grand Duke Ivan III, the post of physician was occupied by a learned Jew, Master Leon, who had been invited from Venice. In the beginning of 1490, the eldest son of the Grand Duke fell dangerously ill. Master Leon tried to cure his patient by means of hot cupping glasses and various medicaments. Questioned by the Grand Duke whether his son had any chances of recovery, the physician, in an unguarded moment, replied, I shall not fail to cure your son, otherwise you may put me to death. On March 15, 1490, the patient died. When the forty days of mourning were over, Ivan III gave orders to cut off the head of the Jewish physician for his failure to effect a cure. The execution was carried out publicly on one of the squares of Moscow. In the eyes of the Moscovites, both the learned theologian Shkaria and the physician Leon were adepts of the black arts or magicians. The Judaizing heresy instilled in them a superstitious fear of the Jews, of whom they only knew by hearsay. As long as such ideas and manners prevailed, the Jews could scarcely expect to be hospitably received in the land of the Muscovites. No wonder then that for a long time the Jews appeared there, not in the capacity of permanent residence, but as itinerant merchants who in a few cases, and with extreme reluctance at that, are accorded the right of temporary sojourn in holy Russia. End of section 2